Before I start, allow me to put up a disclaimer. This episode was recorded a bit differently than others. It is a collaboration with Michelle Sargent of the Cornfield Meat. While I'm more direct and facts-focused, Michelle tends to add a bit of banter and laughter into her podcast. This is in no means intended as a form of disrespect to the victims of the disaster or their families, friends, and relatives. It is just a way to release some of the darkness of the topics she covers. Now, let's roll the intro. On October 31st, 1954, in the Yugoslavian constituency of Croatia, a tram full of passengers would jump its tracks and crash into an intersection near a hospital in Zagreb, killing 19 people in the deadliest of a string of accidents involving tram number 13. I'm Michael, and welcome to a special channel of catastrophe and the cornfield meat collaborative episode. Alright, I'm going to start the episode with a few shoutouts because... I actually got a bit of help from the r slash Croatia subreddit on this one. Because this is a Croatian disaster. Okay. So, first off, shoutouts to Reddit users Truth Hyped Up for help with details on the tram type, as well as users Garastinian and Tajin Stevinix for information involving the reason the brakes failed, as well as the user DomJohnnyTin on the r slash Croatia subreddit for pointing me towards an informative YouTube video on the disaster. Now, let's begin. Right, Michelle, I want you to run something through your mind. What is the image that comes to mind when you think tram? Is it the amusement park transport? The modern ones? The thing over at Wildwood in New Jersey? Or the thing from postcards in San Francisco? <laughs> I'm going to give you a really interesting one. Uh, the tram at Iron Forge in World of Warcraft. How about that one? <laughs> Never played World of Warcraft. Yeah, they actually have a, a tram that goes between two major cities, and you uh, you jump on it uh, in either Iron Forge or uh, Stormwind, and you just ride the thing it goes underneath the whole like area uh so you actually drop really low in the tram as it's pulling you on the track from above uh and it takes you just from one city to the other <laughs> so when you said tram that of course immediately hit my head now if you're talking real yeah the the san francisco tram is a good one i know that there used to be trams all over the united states uh yeah. they're yeah, really hard city. to find now yeah, my city used to have a tram line. Richmond used to have a tram line. Yep. There used to be one in a small little town I used to live in, believe it or not. I uh, found a old picture 
from uh, when they had the tram running through downtown. And I was blown away that they even had one. I was just like, what? what? <laughs> For me, my picture of a tram is the same thing. It is what multiple people boarded one October 1954 afternoon in the Greb on what in the West would be considered Halloween. In my mind, there is something beautiful about these usually single car vehicles running on electric power down roads. Yep. In 1954, the Greb was a city in the Yugoslavian constituency of Croatia. The Greb was founded sometime around 1093. And, like many Eastern European cities, it fell to the Nazis and was bombed heavily during the Second World War by the Allies. However, unlike many cities, it sustained minimal damage from what it could find. And, as a result, the city's 1910 electric tram lines and many other buildings escaped damage. And this is where we get into the political part. So, I suspect we might be hearing a bit from Andy here. Actually, Andy is in the living room, so he's not even hearing us. <laughs> Great, because we're about to talk a bit about communism. That's probably a good thing, then. <laughs> now, after the war, Yugoslavia, which Croatia was a part of, would have its um, monarchy government system overthrown by communists under the lead of one Joseph Braz Tito. However, Tito was not like most Euro Eastern European communist leaders. You see, Tito had a messy breakup with Joseph Stalin. And actually, there's a tale of Joseph Stalin sending several hitmen after Tito. They didn't get along. And Tito said, if you send one more person to kill me, I'll just kill them again and I'll send a hitman to Moscow, and I'll only need to send one. He was famously quoted as saying something along that line to Stalin after getting sick of having all those hitmen sent after him. Now, from what I've read, Tito allowed a free market, which resulted in a strong economy by Eastern European communist standards, and it was ranked 24th in the world by the time of the country's collapse in the 90s. But by then, Tito was long dead. Also, as Yugoslavia was against the USSR, the country enjoyed, enjoyed some nice perks, such as U.S. aid. So, yeah, in the middle of the Cold War, the U.S. government was, in fact, supporting a communist government. But then went to turn around and backstab them once Tito died. Sounds about right. Because it's quite obvious who, in fact, they were actually supporting. And it wasn't the government. It was a leader. Now, Yugoslavia still had its issues. Most of these being disasters owing to still using a lot of aging rail travel. Because... And although Croatia has really only had two notable earthquakes in the past, Yugoslavia as a whole although not to the extent of California or even nearby Italy, seems to be earthquake-prone. Really, that whole area of Europe seems to be quite earthquake-prone. You know, Italy all the way up to the Balkans. 
Now, here we get to the disaster. On October 31st, 1954, and you know what date October 31st is, right? That would be Halloween. Yes. So, technically, this one probably would have been a better one to do around Halloween, but I wasn't aware that this occurred on Halloween when I started doing the research. Anyway, on Halloween uh, of 1954, Tram number 13 departed the picturesque Murugaj Cemetery. I can't make this up. But on Halloween, the tram was was numbered 13, and it departed a cemetery. Talk about a coincidence, huh? <laughs> right? Now, the thing about the cemetery, Murugaj Cemetery, is... Let me bring up some photos of it. Oh, I can't bring the photos up. It's saying, let me just bring up this link, and you can see the vi see the pictures of it. It's just absolutely stunning. Yeah, in the way of cemeteries, that's for sure. Yeah, like my city, Richmond, has a cemetery that's typically uh listed as very beautiful called Hollywood and Miro Gods just puts it completely to shame. Now it is a lovely cemetery with its multiple arcades, cupolas, and painted domes. It almost looks like the White House in this shot. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy looking. Yeah. And a little side note. This is the same cemetery where the victims of the 1976 Zagreb plane crash would later be buried. So, this would not be the only connection of this cemetery to a disaster in Zagreb. Gotcha. The passengers had been there making preparations for All Saints Day. It was already a foggy morning, and to make matters worse, it was raining as well, and the ground was also slick with leaves. So all of this will become quite crucial later. Now, the tram. The tram was a 1920s era tram called the TMK M24. And let me bring that up. Here we go. And here's the M24. Let's take a look. Ooh. I doubt this is the way they looked back then. Um, or maybe it is. It's enclosed um, with windows and everything where I, when I, obviously when I think of, ooh, a Christmas one. <laughs> uh, what I think of, um, you know, like the, the trams that you see in San Francisco, they're open. People can jump off and, you know, off and on and um, things like that. I know that they are currently, or I know that they were uh, redoing their tram 
uh, over there. I don't know if they've opened it up. I know it was like closed. Gosh, it had to be for almost two years. And um, of course, they're red. These are blue. Um, and uh, I don't know if they're enclosing theirs or if they have enclosed ones. But the ones that I always saw didn't have any windows. They were just wide open. So. From what I could tell from reading, the the M24s had always had enclosed windows. Yeah, yeah even back then, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe because of the area. I, if, it, if it rains more and snows more, then yeah, they probably would keep them enclosed. I was about to say, if you take two of the cars and kind of mush them together, it would almost remind me of what a doodle bug looks like. But a doodle bug looks more like just a single passenger car like if you can imagine a passenger car on a a train today uh if you just take one of those and self-propel it without an engine that's what a doodle bug is and yeah i was just taking a look at this that kind of reminds me of that although a doodle bug is gas powered and not electric uh can run on you know normal freight train lines and stuff like that that's pretty neat looking though yeah and they're also incredibly rare now. I can imagine. Yeah, from when when would you say this was in the 50s? They were in the 20s, and they were phased out during the 50s. Yeah. Um, like I was saying, even here in the United States, uh, you know, when you talk about trams, they're, they're very few and far between anymore, even here. Um, especially these styles that run right on the roads and stuff. Now, one thing that strikes me about them is it looks to have a bit of wood construction. It's possible, yep. Because? This is also a little scary when you cover disasters like me and you. <laughs> but I'm not going to lie. I mean, there's one of them still operational, and it takes a scenic route through old Zagreb. And I'll get to that mm. later. Now, at this point, the tram was obviously on its last year of service because, as I said, it would be phased out later in the 50s. Right. And it was headed downhill from Mirogaj Cemetery towards, and I'm probably going to butcher this horribly because it's in Croatian, Sosta, Sosta Rivica Street. And it had about 60 people on board. Things are going to go from 0 to 60 pretty fast here. Because this disaster happened pretty damn quickly. As the incline on Mirogaj is quite steep, the driver made a maneuver to apply the magnetic rail brakes. Had the tram been working properly, the brakes would have been safely deployed. Guess what? It Other factors wrong. came into play. Yep. <laughs> yeah now that's the way it is with disasters you always uh it's never just one, one thing never ever ever it's always that's you know why, a, an accumulation why, that's why seconds from disaster always mentioned unravel the chain of events in their intro exactly um there is a book oh i can see the book cover now i can't think of the name um inviting i think it's called inviting disasters or something along those lines really good book uh and he basically 
breaks down everything that you know happens from beginning to end and uh, it's a really really good book so yeah it's uh it, it covers you know plane disasters train disasters oil rigs blowing up it, it just covers all across the board so it's a really a really really good read now had the brakes worked the tram would have successfully turned past a hospital and onto Gupekeva Zvedija. However, the magnetic brakes failed. And now at that point the tram still the tram still probably could have been saved. The tram also had sand powered emergency brakes. And Michelle, do you know how those work? So those are um engaged when the emergency is thrown on um it, really it could be a locomotive uh the crazy eights csx uh 8888 engine locomotive had them um the uh, all the locomotives actually have them uh all the freight locomotives passenger locomotives uh amtrak they all have the uh the sand brakes uh and the doodabug had them the uh in fact when i covered the doodabug disaster that happened in Cuyahoga Falls in Ohio, they threw, when he threw the emergency brake, it threw the sand on the track, but unfortunately he was moving too quickly. He was going about, they were estimating about 50 miles an hour when he threw the emergency and it threw the sand on the, it throws, what it does is it throws the sand on the tracks uh, in an effort for the wheels to get a little bit of attraction to be able to stop quickly. The engineer that was driving the doodabug through the emergency brakes and then jumped off the doodabug. Uh, he was one of only three that survived yeah, off that, of that. That was a uh, horrifying doodabug. accident, much like this It one. was. It was extremely horrifying. Um, this one has quite a few parallels to the doodabug, actually. Oh boy, yeah, that uh, it was very, very, um, very nasty indeed. But that is essentially what the sand is for. And this is one of those things as I've been doing disasters, especially with my husband. Um, he, he is, you know, he works for a railroad, knows everything about trains, knows everything just about, you can imagine about locomotives. He's driven locomotives, he's ridden on them you know, stuff like that. But he's the one, you know, when I, I asked him, you know, cause I, I can't remember which, uh, it might've been a doodabug episode where I learned exactly what the sand was used for because I had never even heard of anything like that in, in the research that I had done up to that point. Um, never heard of anybody throwing an emergency on the train and, and it throwing the sand on the tracks. And that's, they made it a very strong point that that is exactly what happened when that doodlebug uh, was charging down the tracks, and he threw the emergency. They, you know, made it very clear that sand was thrown on the tracks. I was like, "What the heck is the sand for?" <laughs> you know, and and uh, Andy let me know that uh, it was, you know, to to have have the wheels get some traction to try to stop. Now, that is, and actually, that is pretty much what happened here because, unfortunately, for everyone on board. The driver waited too late to apply these brakes, and as a result, 
the now runaway tram continued to pick up speed as it zoomed past the hospital. Then, with a horrifying screech, the tram hit the last curb and jumped the tracks, rolling over multiple times before hitting a light pole. Yeah. The force of the accident was so great that it uprooted several chestnut trees and essentially telescoped into itself. Wow. Yeah. Telescoping, uh, other than being a victim of a snake head, uh, I, I'm not sure if you know what a snake head is. No. Uh, a snake head, uh, back in the day, the, the actual rails were different. They used to just be strips of metal just tacked down on wood is what they used to be. And the metal would wear at the, the joints and would roll any, you know, like a train would be going over it. And eventually it would roll up and penetrate through the inside of the train and just roll into the middle of the train and down, down the middle of the, the, the carriage. And the, that to me is absolutely terrifying. I mean, that would be terrifying to see. And it was really common uh, when those types of rails were used way back in the day. Um, and then telescoping, of course, uh, if you imagine, you know, a, a telescope that breaks down, you know, it, it folds in kind of into itself. That is essentially what you're describing here happens with its own carriage, essentially. Um, it, uh, it actually went into itself and busted out the seams where it went into the inside. Basically, anybody that's in the front part of that, where that happens, is dead. It's very unusual to have anybody in that part of a telescope live. And actually, this Google Translate page has pictures of the wreckage. <laughs> You can barely. Right. That isn't even That's... recognizable as a crane or a tram. Uh, yeah, it just looks like a pile of wood and metal. Yeah, it really does. That is a telescoping, isn't it? That is uh, a mess. That's <laughs> exactly what that is. Um, yeah, that is uh, definitely. Just a, it's just, yeah, it's just a pile of broken, splintered wood and metal and glass just in a mound. It's really hard to tell if it even telescope. Uh, a good example of a telescope, um, I'm trying to think of, uh, we just did one recently where, where it telescoped into itself and it literally, it, you could see where the car that was so you have a car in front of you and then the car behind that one and the car rammed the, the one in the back rammed into the one in the front and rammed into it about halfway into that car and it stayed intact but the car that it rammed into split it seems open and just split open on the sides as that other one rammed onto the inside. And that's a really good description of, of what a, a classic looking telescope of a train might look like. 
when you're looking at something like that, that there, when that telescope, it, it looks like it just blew the, the whole thing apart. I mean, there was nothing to, to even look like, you know, uh, an actual car was even there. It just, it just blew it apart. Now, as you saw, the wreckage was unrecognizable with bodies, yeah. parts of bodies in this parts of the tram scattered all over the place. The cry of the injured and dying permeated the air. As soon as the crash happened, average citizens, people waiting on a nearby tram stop, all went rushing to help anyone they could. And this is something that is sadly becoming less common after the disaster. Yeah, especially, well, especially now with, with COVID-19, uh, you're going to have people uh, a little more resistant to going and, and just running out there and helping people. Um, I found in a lot of disasters that we've covered, if somebody can help, they generally try to, which is amazing and beautiful and absolutely, you know, stunning in this world. Um, you know, so it's, it's really good to see that there are still people who are willing to, you know, help in any way they can, especially the people who risk their own lives that get out there quite like our frontline healthcare workers right now doing that. Um, I got two cousins that are nurses that are out there, you know, and, and one of them. And my yeah. mom's a family practitioner. Yeah. And, and my one of my uh, cousins is pregnant right now. So, you know, it's everybody doing what they can. And, and yeah, you know better better than most, you know, when, when you're talking about your very own, you know, mother being exposed to COVID-19 day in and day out, possibly, yeah. you know. Because she did actually come into contact with someone with it. It's terrifying, you know, to think that, that you've come in contact. Yeah, you know, there were some people saying that uh, it's almost as um, it, it, you can you can almost catch it as easily as the measles, which is which is highly, highly contagious. Um, but they've kind of toned that down a little bit. Thank God. <laughs> you know, um, they were in the beginning saying that for every one person that has COVID, they could give it to two people. Then they upped it to three people. And now it's back down to two people. Um, in the so beginning, I was one of the ones denying its severity. Uh, yeah, it's it's just one of those. You, you guys tore me apart on Twitter for that. <laughs> you know, it's well, it's just one of those things where it's it's an unknown disease and the best thing to do with something like this is to take it very seriously you know and then if it turns out not to be as serious then you can kind of back off of that a little bit but in my opinion it's always better to overreact and underreact and in fact looking at the countries if you would have looked at the united states people looking at the united states actually from from the rest of the world were saying okay, the United States underreacted. They were slow to do what they needed to do to protect themselves, so this is why we are where we are right now. But now... Uh, part of the well, issue is actually our healthcare system. Actually, not even the... Yeah. Even if we had Medicare for all, it wouldn't help because the problem isn't medic. The No, it's, it's not Medicare. having that. Yeah. Actually, the problem underlies with the state of our healthcare system as a whole. Yeah. It's not yeah. that good. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it you know, now overhauls. If, I don't know if you noticed the latest <laughs> uh, death count in um, England right now is over 15,000 people. And England is nowhere near our population. And they also have NHS. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they're but, in a very but bad... But I've also heard that their system isn't that great. Their yeah, that's possible. isn't that great. Yeah. Well, you know, and anybody saying, you know, we should have been prepared for this. There's no preparing for this. You, you, nobody was prepared for this. Nobody. Not one country could sit there and say that they were prepared for this. No. Not even New Zealand, who has really only lost one person. But no, what you, no. they did, they reacted quickly. What they did was they said, we're shutting our borders down. Nobody in. Nobody, you know, if you want to go out, that's fine. But nobody in. Not not one person. Not even, you know, anybody uh, who were travelers coming in. They just, they stopped everything. And they shut the governments down. And they reacted very quickly. And that is one of the main reasons why they've done so good in this. Um, but they could, they're an island, so they could shut their borders down and nobody's coming in or out if they put their, you know, foot down and they say there's no flying. <laughs> like places like Australia, compare Australia's uh, hospitals to U.S.'s hospitals. They're better. I know right. from experience. <laughs> Because Dad had an incident when he was in when we were in Australia for a vacation, and we had to visit an Australian hospital, and they're better oh. than U.S. hospitals. Wow. Hmm. So anyway, Matt, back to the disaster. Right. I don't usually <laughs> I get track. sidetracked. <laughs> the only time I've gotten sidetracked is when I did co-hosts, being episodes. I got to. It's a bad habit I have called that I tend to change subjects. Well, it, you know, when it just kind of when you're talking on the flow of conversation, that just happens. Um, you know, for, for example, the, the last episode we just had uh, where we did the interview with Chris, we actually, there were two recordings for that particular episode. We recorded where me and Mel talked about the disaster. And then when we did the interview with Chris was completely separate. And then I had to edit what we talked to Chris about into what me and Mel talked about. And it was all out of order because we just let the conversation go. I literally said, look, we're just letting the conversation go. If we talk about something that happened at the beginning of the accident versus something that happened at the end of the, you know, the end of the accident, or we were just bullshitting in the middle, it, we were just going to let it go. You know? And I, I told Chris, you know, we're, not professional by any means. And he's like, Hey, whatever, how you ever you want to do this. So he was really cool about it. Um, you know, and, and that's how we did it. That put a lot of pressure on me though, <laughs> because then I had to go through the entire interview. Yeah. And that was literally, actually, in my opinion, your, my favorite episode of the cornfield. Yeah, that was, that was, a, that was a lot of it. That took me three days. That was my favorite editing. episode. So yeah, far by a long shot. Yeah, I, I kept telling uh, Mel, I said, look, this is coming out really good. Uh, after we interviewed Chris, we interviewed Chris first. And I said to her, um, you know, that I said, this is going to be a really good episode. I knew just from interviewing him, it was going to be a good episode. And then when me and her did our part, 
we changed our format. I don't know if you picked up on that. We changed how we did it. Yeah, that's um, actually not my typical format either. Yeah, yeah. So it was, you know, I'm instead of more direct and more to the point. Right. You you follow the script. You do you read, you know, through the script and that's how her and I normally did it. Well, with that one, I said to her, let's change the script to what I called freestyle, where we did just bullet points, you know, to kind of keep on track of what we were going to be talking about. But we filled in everything that we remembered from what we researched and things like that. And she was on board with doing it that way. And then when we did it, we both really, really enjoyed how it came out. And we said, that's how we're doing it from now on. So unless somebody actually sends us a script, uh, which is actually one we're doing next week, we're actually going to be reading a, a submitted script that somebody gave to us. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, we are doing literally just a freestyle where it's just bullet points and then we fill in the conversation as we go through. So uh, we actually like that better because we don't have to worry about like, you know, uh, plagiarizing, you know, stuff like that. Uh, we still reference, or, you know, sites. Or yeah, we, script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then having to go in and, and edit through there. But um, we're still going to, you know, give our references of the, the websites or the, the newspapers we use, you know, to, to do the podcast. Um, but really, most of it is just grabbing little sections or little facts that they may have mentioned and just mentioning those facts, but filling in things ourselves. So, um, but yeah, I think it, it came out really good. And I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Um, I've been getting a lot of feedback and, you know, on that on that episode and people have really, really enjoyed it. So I'm probably going to do an a cut edited and yeah, uncut, yeah, that's fine. An uncut version. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Yeah, I I mean, that's what I do. (laughs) You know, like there's things. Yeah, exactly. And I, what I have, like, I'm actually thinking about uh, taking the entire interview that we did with Chris and releasing that as a, as like a bonus for, you know, people to listen to um, with very, very little editing on it. There might be you know, some editing just to cut out, you know, like, uh, like spots that are where somebody, you know, had to walk away from the mic for some reason or something. Um, but other than that, it's going to be very lightly edited and I'll just post it up there as a, as a bonus. We'll kick it out one day and everybody can just enjoy listening to the interview and actually how it, it flowed natively. You know what I mean? (laughs) Now, shortly thereafter, doctors and nurses from the nearby hospital, which the runaway tram had only passed moments before, also arrived and began first aid. Taxi drivers. Actually very lucky that it happened so closely to hospital. Yeah. Um, because they, they had people on site almost immediately to help them and that that is amazing. Yeah. That actually probably helped a lot of people survive this because this is for sure you saw the wreckage (laughs) yeah it's you know train wrecks are no joke 
And even though today we have uh, better constructed modes of transportation on the rail lines, what people tend to forget is, yeah, the, the car may be able to take the impact where people are inside, but you're forgetting the people are inside. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, even though the car may look good on the outside, like hasn't telescoped and hasn't crushed, you know, things like that, you're still talking about yeah, people inside. Yeah, the shock into, into people. Think about robot exactly. combat, for example. Yep. Yep, you, you're the the people you're, inside you are still taking somewhere else. You got it. You got it. And that's how the big spinners in robot combat tend to break themselves. They transfer the force from their hits into themselves in an attempt to break their opponents. Yep, you got it. You definitely when you when you're talking about something like that, it's yeah, the the shock of of the the force of impact is what is what kills most people that's what kills most people the old odd adage it's not the fall that kills you it's the landing yeah i always said i'm not afraid of heights i'm afraid of falling <laughs> taxi drivers as well as passing motorists also use their vehicles as an impromptu ambulances to rush people to nearby hospitals until actual ambulances were deployed although the crash happened on a sunday meaning the blood transfusion institute was closed the workers showed up there anyway to help people donate blood and this undoubtedly also saved lives so you basically have people showing up unpaid to work yeah it's amazing what people will do in the face of a disaster i mean that happened in the 1946 texas city explosion you had people who came in that weren't being paid to, to help. And um, yeah, when you have people who are hurt, who are doing that, I mean, that's something that I would do if I was, you know, in a major disaster, I, I'd offer my services for help, you know, anything I could do to, you know, help people get through, you know, the yeah. situation. Cause I'm gonna talk a bit about Hermitcraft a bit. Yeah, I don't think anyone would have expected his after podcast to bring up Hermitcraft. Um, Joe Hills, he is a member of the Minecraft artist collective known as Hermitcraft, and he lives in Nashville. And as you know, Nashville was devastated by a tornado earlier this year. Yeah, again, uh, it was it was hit by a tornado. Oh, I don't know, maybe. 15 years ago, I want to say. Yeah. Uh, and that was when people kept going, oh, you yeah, know, a tornado can't hit a major city. People can be so ignorant when it comes to stuff like that. They really need to educate themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, a tornado could hit anywhere uh, in the United States, literally anywhere in the United States. Anyway, he, a single parent, decided to help try and help people recover their belongings and the aftermath and help people in the aftermath of the general whole. If you've watched any of Joe's videos, it's quite obvious he's the type of person who would do that. But yeah, people do help out after disasters. Although it's sadly yeah. becoming less common. There's a um, disaster podcast called, ironically, Disaster Podcast. 
Uh, and that particular podcast deals, so like we tell stories of what has happened. That's what we do. We the disaster the disaster themselves, yeah. Right. Where disaster podcast, those are that that is aimed toward first responders, nurses, doctors, medical staff, uh, ham radio operators, anybody who you know helps in the face of disasters. That's what that podcast is aimed for, and they cover uh, like current things that are going on. So obviously, right now they're they're covering uh, COVID quite extensively. Oh yeah, and the response to that. Um, but they they cover all. I mean, they like before COVID hit, they were talking about all kinds of things, you know, from how uh, they 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 covered the the tornado um, that happened in Nashville. Uh, so they did cover that and how people responded in the the you know the emergency front you know first responders uh, field. So it's it's really that's a good one to listen to if anybody's interested in actually listening to more of like a professional's uh, response to disasters and current event. That's instead of what amateur, they cover. Instead of amateurs like us. Yeah, we're, as I like to say, we are uh, amateur disaster historians. <laughs> yeah, we're hobbyists. That's, you do yeah, this as a hobby because if we forget disasters, the disaster is going to repeat itself. Exactly. And that's exactly... Uh, you, you haven't heard it yet. Uh, I literally just recorded a new opening and closing for the Cornfield Beat, and that is actually one of the things that I say in it, uh, you know, is that we cover these disasters so that not only do we let people know what we learned from the disasters, but also to, you know, make sure that we don't forget them because... Like you said, we're bound to repeat the mistakes of the past if we don't understand and realize what happened. On the crash scene, criminal technician Lujobmir Gudelij surveyed the carnage. Quote, I finished the night shift, took a nap, and then the call came. I was one of the first on the scene. I was greeted with rubbish, a bumpy tree there, Broken glass and corpses everywhere. Weeping was heard. We did not know how many were dead, whether there were any survivors. Quote, Goodledge would later state, with the tram having derailed at 80 kilometers per hour, or 50 miles per hour, that the crash was so violent that the victims could only be identified by fingerprints. And what was the doodlebug derailment again? That was uh, same speed, 50 miles an hour. Um, when when they hit the brakes, when they hit the emergency, the actual, uh, when the, the accident happened, they estimated the speed of the doodlebug down to about uh, between like 45 to 40 miles an hour when it hit the steam engine. Lifting, and the lifting happened at a higher speed than the doodlebug. It sounds like this one stayed at 50 miles an hour when it happened. So, yes, it would have been faster because the doodlebug was actually able to slow down a little bit before it hit the steam engine. Now, mind you, the steam engine telescoped about a quarter of the way into the doodlebug. 
So there was a telescoping effect there too. And you could actually, uh, I do have pictures of it where you could actually see the steam. Yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> the steam yeah. engine, yeah, buried into, yeah, the uh, the doodle bug where it split the doodle bug uh, open. But yeah, it, 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 it was able to slow down. However, there, so, you know, with, with the forces involved, you, you had the doodle bug going between 40 to 45 miles an hour when it hit the steam train. And you got to remember the steam train was also moving too. It was moving about 20 miles an hour is what they kind of estimated that. So it wasn't moving very fast, but when you're talking 20 hitting 40, you're talking essentially 60 miles an hour of force. So it still may have been a little worse with the doodle bug, but yes, the doodle bug was going slower than this tram was going when it derailed. But yeah, Theo, I said that there are quite a few parallels to the doodle bug with this one. Yeah, but thankfully this one didn't, I mean, well, it did kind of hit something. It didn't catch on fire. That is true. Um, And that, that's a, a thankful thing in itself because they would have lost a lot more people. That's where you're going to see people stand back is when fire is involved because a lot of people don't want to get burned. So you're going to, that's where you're going to see a lot of people not make that effort. But then you do have some crazy ones that do make that effort. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, th- this one didn't catch on fire. Uh, this one did hit something. I was about to say it didn't hit anything, but it did. It hit the telephone pole, which I'm sure just obliterated no, it. No, not just the telephone hole, hole. It hit an entire, let's see, what did it, else did it hit again? Ah, it hit it up. It hit several chest, a grove of chestnut trees. Trees, yeah, that's right. Yep, yeah. So I mean, there were obviously, Full you know, forced chestnut tree, trees. Yeah, so there were there were forces of impact them. from that. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's. I mean, I'm sure you remember just from our last episode where I was talking about. When the plane crashed, yeah, it just sliced those trees down, and they were over a foot thick. Sliced them down like they were buzzsawed, you know. So, uh, yeah, the forces involved are just insane when you're talking about being able to do something like that. To quote Goodledge again, and major trigger warning, uh, this does involve the death of a child. Quote, they sent me to forensic medicine. They brought a corpse of a mother and child. We were able to identify the mother by the polypiary lines of the index finger and of the right hand because the ID cards had fingerprints back then. But the baby? This was only a baby. We assumed the identity because she was with her mother. End quote. Mm. Yeah. It's never, never, yeah, it's never, ever good when, when kids are involved. I mean, it just, you know, it, it really brings it home for a lot of people when they see, you know, children involved. Um, I'll give you an example of one that we covered. You might remember, uh, it was the UFA accident that happened in Russia. Lots of kids involved in that one. Um, I mean, you're talking two trains with nearly 500 people on each train and uh it was a gas explosion that happened as they were passing each other 
uh, set off a gas explosion because there was a pipeline that ran right along the track and it it had ruptured and was leaking. And uh, instead of uh, the technicians trying to find out where the leak was, they noticed a drop in pressure in the line, so they just pumped more pressure into the line. This, of course, caused more gas to leak. Um, so it was that was extraordinarily bad because so many kids died, and we're talking horrific, horrific deaths. Now, as of any major tragedy, relatives kept calling various hospitals anxious to find out the fate of their loved ones some got good news while and I want you to take a guess as to how many survived because there were 60 on board 60 from the pictures i saw i would have guesstimated at least half if not more dying in that the relatives of 19 victims would receive the terrible information. So just a, just a third. Yeah. Looking at that, I would have thought a lot more died. I'm sure a lot more were injured, though. Did, oh, yeah. You there were the 37, 37 were injured. Okay. Yeah. So not many people got out unscathed. No. And then you can't really say unscathed because I am sure that they had PTSD. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. You know, it did no doubt that they had nightmares and for a long time after this. Wikipedia even said this is one of the worst tram accidents in the world. I believe it. Yeah, I believe it because this is not. Um, I'm trying to think if there were any major tram accidents in the United States. It's the top of my head. I mean, I know there were some. The doodlebug wasn't considered a tram because it wasn't, it's not electric. It run down the middle of a, a road. So that was separate from this. Um, I consider the doodlebug a doodlebug. Yeah, it's, well, a doodlebug, uh, <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Uh, it's not quite a passenger train, but it is kind of. <laughs> um, doodlebugs are. Yeah, the doodlebugs are very unique vehicles, and um, we actually do still have a few that run here in the United States, but they're um, like museum, uh, you know, like they've been rebuilt, and and now they run on either real short lines, you know, they don't run really long, long lines anymore. Yeah, they're just for like tourists and stuff, so. But as far as a tram, I know there's been some, but I can't think of any off the top of my head that I've uh, studied or heard about that were really, really bad. I know there was another doodlebug disaster that happened uh, before the one that happened in Ohio, where a lot of people, a lot of people were Literally killed. Literally, when I look up tra tram disaster, the first thing that comes to the search is, is, is this one. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. Yeah, this, this one is, seems to be the tram disaster. This would be interesting for them to, and I wonder, do you know if they've uh, made a show about this? Have they recreated this, this or no? They should. If if it is, it's probably only in Croatia. 
Although yeah, it seems yeah. that there was a rather was one that was worse. Hmm. That happened in Germany when a Convair C one thirty one crashed into a tram, Oof. killing everyone involved. I could imagine both on the plane and the tram. How the hell did the plane hit the tram? Was the plane crashing? Yeah. Okay, so the plane was crashing and just happened to crash into the tram. Oh, that'll be a good one to cover someday. 20 were on the plane, 32 were on the tram. Wow. Should we, let me check. There's not many disasters out there that involve multiple points of transportation. So when you're talking air and rail coming together, that, you know, cause a disaster. I mean, there are other ones I can think of. Uh, there was, for example, there was a, a landslide that took out a bridge that caused a train to uh, go into the river because it took the bridge out. Um, so you had, you know, like a, a natural, or not natural, but a, a nature event happen that ended up causing a rail event happen actually correction um, only 20 people on the tram survived oh okay so there were wow there were survivors that's impressive this thing on all right this is the first of editor's commentary correcting mistakes there were not 20 survivors on the tram after all in fact reports estimate 35 died on the tram but a more accurate estimate is that there were 17 to 22 deaths on said tram, as sources state. 10 to 15 died on the street, with only one confirmed account of a survivor from said tram. My estimate is that 22 died on the tram and 10 on the streets when the Convair crashed into it. Furthermore, it didn't directly crash into the streets. Rather, it hit a church steeple flying low in fog before crashing into the street. And now, back to the extended cut. Yeah, and I mean, well, uh, when the Texas City explosion happened, that was a multiple uh, transportation-related event because you first you had the ship explode, which caused the explosion was so strong that it actually brought down two planes out of the sky. So you had a plane, two plane crashes because of it. Um, it destroyed rail, um, knocking a train off it off the tracks. Uh, because of the explosion. So you had that. Of course, you had cars, trucks, semis, you know, all, all the land transportation vehicles that got destroyed. So that one there was an unusual, very unusual one because it, it caused all lines of transportation to be hit, which is really unusual. Um, the only real event that does things like that, kind of, are like earthquakes. So you have an earthquake and it causes a whole disruption of everything, you know, but it's unusual to have a one 
event happen in transportation that just causes a domino effect of all of them, you know? Um, but yeah, that that's interesting. This one here that you just sent me is is really interesting. You have to cover this. Mm. Yeah, I think the deadliest tram derailment is actually the actually happened in 1996 in Ukraine. Okay. Where uh, the were in uh, Dnip Dnip I'll take your word for it. Uh, Gazuntite, as Andy would say. <laughs> now, now much easier to pronounce. Kamaniski. Okay. Uh, an overcrowded tram derailed during ru rush hour and slammed into a concrete wall as it was going down the hill after the brakes failed. Oh, jeez. Killing 29 of the 150 on board and injuring 100 people. The only thing about... Oh, and five <laughs> died subsequently in hospital. The The one thing that I found that's extremely frustrating when you're covering a disaster that happened in Russia is because of, you know, them trying to cover things up or not letting things out. Well, it's extremely hard to, you know, get information. I mean, when I did the UFA disaster, it was really kind of hard to find things on that disaster. I really, I mean, I really had yeah. to scrape around. I mean, I had to scrape around for the Mayakovsky. Mm-hmm. Which was actually a really bad ferry disaster. Huh, this is a conveyor. Huh. Uh, the, I'm sorry, the one that you just uh, sent me uh, that happened with the, the plane and the uh, tram. I don't know if you noticed, yeah, but it was, it was a conveyor. conveyor. Yeah. <laughs> hey, and I had never heard of a conveyor before until I did that last disaster with, with uh, Chris and Mel. Hmm. It's a conveyor. Conveyor made them really damn nice looking aircraft. They did. I mean, when you when you talk about a classic looking plane, that is what they made. I mean, it is absolutely classic looking. I mean, they made a military aircraft prototype type one called the Sea Dart, and that thing just looked cool as heck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And kind of sad conveyor isn't around anymore. Yeah, they uh, unfortunately got swallowed up much like a lot of the the smaller companies of the day that were building planes, and it came down to just basically two main players in in aircraft building um, today. It's all you know. It's funny because you one of the things they said about like Boeing, for example, Boeing's in trouble. They've been in trouble. They got in trouble. You know they're they're almost on the brink of uh, complete collapse. But one of the things about Boeing, and even our president pretty much said this, is they're too big to fail. So they need to help them. Um, and I don't believe in that line of thought. I believe if a company yeah, is that Embraer, big. Embraer is, all, is still around. Yeah, yeah. I believe easy, if a company. Their place, yep. place. Yeah. But yeah. the problem I mean, is, for the U.S., Embraer is Brazilian, not American. Ah, uh, yes. 
Yeah, and see, that's that's the whole thing. They're trying to prop up the the biggest American company builder of planes. Yeah, and um, yeah, I just I I don't think that a, a company should be so big that they can't fail, um, or that the government won't let them fail because they're that big. You know, it's like if a, if a company gets that big, don't you think that that might be along the lines of a monopoly? <laughs> yeah. If a company gets that big, they should fail. Yeah, they should be able to, at least. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, Boeing was in trouble because of the Max. Yeah. Okay. Isn't so they got what, in, what killed in, Douglas with the Comet? Um... Remember if that's what took them down or not, but I know that with with Boeing, you know, because of the the issue with the Max. Okay, so they got in trouble and they were doing what they needed to do, but they were doing fine as far as they weren't asking the government for any help because they were still okay, um, even though they were taking a pretty big hit. So the fact that this whole COVID thing happened, that really is just, I mean. The airline industry, oh, uh, the the airline industry is the face of the airline industry is going to be completely changed after this because a lot of the small and this is all over the world. A lot of the smaller, you know, aircraft companies they're going out. They're already going out. They're they're claiming bankruptcy. They're shutting things down. They're they're ending, you know, their their tenure as far as you know an aircraft company is concerned. So it's, and it's not going to be as simple as when, you know, the, the countries start opening back up and, and saying, okay, now we can start flying again to different countries. It's not just that, you know, because you're going to have a very timid uh, base of people who, you know, you're going to have the ones obviously for business who are going to go, finally, we can start flying again. They'll start flying, you know, because of business. But as far as like travel, you know, for pleasure, stuff like that, people, they're not going to do it for quite a long time until there is a vaccine out there and they start to feel a little safer as people get the vaccine. And that could be a year, two years, Lord only knows. And by then you're, we're going to see, you're going to start seeing this domino effect of these, you know, airline companies that are just going to stop. Because they can't, they can't prop themselves up. A lot of them said three months, six months. Some of them even said possibly a year. But after that, if they don't see the rebound, they're gone. They're going to go under. Hmm. Yeah. No, actually, the deadliest rail, rail the deadliest uh, streetcar disaster happened in ni- November 7, 1916 in Boston. Editor's Commentary Number 2 The Boston Tram Disaster is not the deadliest tram accident in the world. It isn't even the second deadliest, in fact, and I'll get to that in the later commentary. That dishonor would go to a disaster that happened in 1930 between Avicenna and Baracus, Argentina, when the tram number 75 plunged into the Matenza River, killing 56 of 60 passengers on board, leaving only four survivors. 
Now, back to the extended cut. Yes, uh, that was one that ran off the bridge. Um, that was that's actually one that is in my lineup to cover. I've started doing research well, on it. That was the deadliest. Yep. Um, if I'm if I'm first if I'm not okay, so I think if I'm not mistaken, if I it's been a little while since I looked at it, but if I'm not mistaken, uh, that one uh, the guy ran the the, the signals that were telling him to stop because the bridge was swung open and uh, he basically ran his train right off the bridge just and it, it killed a whole bunch of people that were on the train on the tram yeah it was closely yeah. followed by the tacoma streetcar disaster in july 4th night in on july 4th 1900 which killed 43. oh wow then the one in ukraine and then the one, and then that this one that we're doing. So it's the fourth worst? This is the fourth worst. Yeah. Sounds about right. I mean, you, you're you're talking a, a, you know, 20-ish people that, you know, nearly 20 people. I think you said 19. Uh, that's yeah. a lot of people. And then all the other, practically everybody else was injured for the most part. Yeah. Um, you know, so, yeah, it's not, you know, obviously not good. Um, All right. Editor's commentary number three. The Greb is actually the seventh deadliest tram disaster, not the fifth. I was wrong. Again. It ranks behind the 1930 Matanza River crash in Argentina, which killed 56. The 1896 Victoria-British Columbia crash, which killed 55. The 1916 Boston-Massachusetts crash, which killed 46. The 1900-Tacoma-Washington crash, which killed 43. Both the 1996-Kamiansky-1950 and 1950-Chicago crashes, which both killed 34, and the 1917 Pittsburgh crash, which killed 21. Interestingly enough, this also points out how much safer trams have gotten too, is that only two of the top 10 deadliest tram disasters happened in the information age. And even still, these two, Gothenburg and Kamiansky, both happened in the 1990s, not a single one of the top 10 deadliest has happened in the 21st century. The reason that the Greb crash is often referred to as the worst is because of how horrific the crash scene was. This is only topped in sheer horrificness by the Munich, I mean Munich, Germany C-130 crash of 19, the 1960s, which was more of an air disaster than with some rail involvement. Furthermore, the death toll on that tram, which the C-130 crashed into, is unknown, and hence why it is not in the top 10 list. Sadly, as much as the tram victims on that one deserve to be known there, I don't think we'll ever know their identities or the true casualty rate. Back to the extended cut. 
yeah, that one in, in Boston, that that one actually, I started doing research on probably about three months ago. Uh, but with everything that's been going on in the disasters that we've been covering, that one just kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. But that is one of them that I have on the uh, on the list to cover for sure. So for sure, pay attention when that one hits. <laughs> Can't wait. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, the one that we're recording this weekend is a nasty one. This was this is the first one of the kind of its kind that we're doing. Um, it's a uh, a vehicle train disaster. So it's a essentially a road vehicle uh, disaster that happens in a train hits the the uh, the vehicle and it causes a big big mess. The project lifesaver and I'm will be coming later though. Uh, you know what? Uh, actually, this one mentions that quite a lot. Uh, you're, you'll be very interested to hear how this one plays into that. This one plays into that quite a bit. Yeah, but I have a an area in this one where we we probably will be would be better off mentioning Project Lifesaver. For sure. Um, Heck yeah. Also, as a any disaster. An investigation was ultimately launched. The first find was that the emergency brakes had failed to dump the proper amount of sand, meaning there was probably something wrong with the emergency brakes. Almost immediately, focus was placed on car number 21, which earlier in the day had been involved in a collision with, get this, a horse-drawn carriage between Degen and Medivesque. <laughs> now, apparently the driver who survived the crash did not return the tram to the depot, as it looked like the tram had gotten out of the collision with the carriage unscathed. In reality, the collision had caused problems with the magnetic brakes. Investigators, they were zeroing in on the cause, but shouldn't the sand brakes have been able to stop the runaway tram? Not always. Uh, <laughs> it... it... In that respect, because he he hit the curve at the speed he did, even at that, I don't think that that tram would have no, been able to no, stop. No, he applied he applied the brakes before then, well before he hit. The right, car. yeah. So that yeah, that should have should have definitely stopped the vehicle. Um, now I'm just talking because the tracks were were wet is would be where I would be leading on that. Um, yeah, uh, because the wet track situation. Right. Um, I know that uh, that was one of the problems with the doodle bug uh, not being able to stop as quickly as it should have. The tracks were wet, so um, that does play a factor into you know trying to stop a a, a train. I mean, you're talking a, a steel smooth wheel on a steel smooth rail. <laughs> you know. Um, there's not much traction there. <laughs> so, the investigator then looked to the weather and the track conditions. Remember when I said it was rainy, foggy, and the track was covered in leaves? Well, yeah. the leaves proved to be the final piece of the puzzle. You see, when the brakes failed, as the driver was dumping sand, the wet leaves which had by then this point been crushed to the point that they were literally oiling the track, made the sand brakes completely useless. Yeah. Without the magnetic brakes, 
in which the emergency brakes rendered right useless by the weather and the oil tracks, the tram was essentially doomed. Yeah, it was like trying to stop a train on ice. Yeah, because yeah. it was going on a wet oil track in the end. Out of the 60 on board, only 41 survived. Of these, only four would escape injury. Wow. Physical injury. And again, yeah, I was going to say, and again, that's not mental, that's physical. Because they are definitely going to have mental. Yeah. Anybody would. Anybody. Even, even the toughest, roughest person in the world could, you know... A lot of rescuers, for example, a lot of a lot of doctors and nurses, even today, are seeing things that they never thought that they would see, and they've never broken down until this very moment. You know, so it's, it, you know, you just the human brain can only take so much, and it's either going to cause you to have nightmares and flashbacks, or you know, you're you're going to be crippled with fear it's amazing the brain is amazing let me tell you the investigation ultimately put blame on the both the driver and the weather the driver for not sending the tram back to the depot for proper inspection after the collision played a crucial part in the regular brakes not working properly as well as the inefficient emergency brakes because remember, those weren't at 100% either. Right. And the weather, because, well, it's obvious, this was a very, very, very hard-to-duplicate, replicate situation. Yeah. Yeah, just looking at the, the pictures, it's going to be hard to replicate anything like that. And that's why I made so many comparisons with the doodlebug, is because that's basically the closest parallel, parallel to this to this whole accident. Yeah, and, you know, it, what really sometimes throws investigators off, and there's been some things that investigators have found even years down the road that have completely turned an investigation on its nose, is some stuff is completely destroyed like completely destroyed and they can't figure out what happened. You know, um, they, they think they know what happened or they think they thought something else happened when it was actually something else. So when, when things are destroyed to the point of, you know, just being completely obliterated, like that's that. where, yeah, I mean, that's where it gets, it gets really hard to piece together uh, oh, what happened. That yeah, and well destroyed too. Yeah, I mean, and even investigations like plane wrecks um, nowadays, what they'll do is they'll take all the pieces from the plane and take them into a big hangar and you know arrange them, them together like a big jigsaw puzzle. Big jigsaw puzzle, yeah, to figure out what happened. In fact, that's how they finally figured out what happened to Flight 800. Uh, that was TWA Flight 800 that me and Mel mentioned last week. Uh, was they had taken the plane and they started putting the plane back together to see where the main part of the explosion was and uh, to see if they could, you know, find any residue where the explosion happened and things like that. So it's amazing what they do 
as far as that's concerned, um, you know, taking it to a big hanger and then putting it back together like a big jigsaw puzzle. Bear in mind, um, this, this, this investigation, this well-documented investigation was in a communist country. Yeah. In the 50s. Was the news of this uh, released? Like, did people know about it pretty much, you know, just a day or two after? I mean, obviously. Yeah, because a lot of times, obviously, when you, you're talking communists, it's really hard I to heard, get information out much. of there. From what I've, what I've come to, what I've, from all signs that I've heard, that Tito was kind of different from most of the communist leaders. Well, yeah, I mean, if he was sure, aligned right. with the U.S., then he was probably willing to release more things than other communist countries. But yeah, most most communist countries, you know, they're I mean, just, he they... still did have the have brutal prison camps. He wasn't oh, a yeah. saint, right? Tito was no saint. Let's just put it that way. But he was less brutal than the other communist dictators, right? And he was more willing to have some like give. Now, following the accident, the tracks on Mirogage would lay dormant for a decade until 1964 when the service was reestablished. The new trams would feature a quadruple redundant brake system consisting of electric, air, and electromagnetic brakes, as well as a handbrake to prevent what happened from ever happening again. However, the tram's time on Miragage was limited, as in 1967, just three years after the line was reinstated, it shut down permanently and was replaced by buses. So all that effort to get it, get it running again, just wasted, you know? Right. The tracks would ultimately be removed sometime in the 70s. Today, the only evidence the tram ever ran down Miragage is the old overhead electric lines the trams used for power. Now, these are used to power streetlights, so there's still some remnants of the tram line. Hmm. This isn't the end of line number 13's tale, however, as in 1996, the tram number again returned to service, and after nearly half a century, and within a month of its reinstatement, was involved in four different accidents. This line can't catch a break, can it? Uh... You said it was lucky number 13? Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason why skyscrapers don't have a 13th floor. <laughs> and now, from 2008 to 2010, there would be one serious accident per year involving the number 13 tram. The first incident in 2008 injured 13 people. And I'd like you to get Andy now, please. So, in 2009... <laughs> One person was killed after being ran over by the tram. And now, we need a word about Project Lifesaver. Think before you make a tragic decision, like racing a train or getting caught on the tracks. Be smart, don't go around the gates. When it's a tie between you and a several thousand ton train, you lose. Look, listen, and live. Okay, I'm back. Finally, in 2010, Tram 13 
was involved in a collision with the number three tram that injured nine. Since then, there have been no further incidents with tram 13, and honestly, I hope it stays that way. Right? Yeah. As for the TMK M24 model tram, there are actually still two in existence. Both are fully operational. And although one is owned by the technical museum Nikola Tesla, both are actually maintained and ran by the Greb's public transport system, VET the Greb. If you visit the Greb, you can take a ride in one of these beautiful time capsules. I'm Michael. And I'm Michelle. And you have been listening to Channel of Catastrophe. With corn with meat. <laughs> yes. Watch for disasters and check out cornfield meat as well. And remember, never try never, to outrun a train. <laughs>